0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 210 of Allied Strategies. My name is Tristan, joining me, as always, is my friend, Benjamin. Hello. Uh, Hello, Benjamin. (laughs) (laughs) And my friend, Sam.
1: Hello.
0: Oh, okay. Um, So hi to to both of you. This week, we are going to talk about common mistakes in Limited. We've got kind of a list of the big things that we see players... The the big errors we see players commit, uh, especially in Limited... Uh, but first, we've got a number of, of topics to cover in our introduction here. Uh, but let's start off by talking about what you guys did this past weekend. So, Sam, how about you? What were you up to this last weekend?
1: Uh, I was actually with Ben. We went to a little board game convention up in the Couve, a.k.a. Vancouver. And we we had a good old time. It was really fun. Yeah, Wouldn't you say so, Ben?
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. I defeated Samuel in multiple Battle of Wits Euro games, and then he defeated me. Yeah, didn't I? Castles of Burgundy and Dungeon Lords. Uh,
1: Oh, you did beat me in Castles of Burgundy. Yeah, that was bull****.
2: Finally, someone other than me swears on the podcast. Um... Meanwhile, Sam defeated me in low-skill social deception games. Like Wait, coup? hold on,
1: I also beat you in
2: Heath <laughs> Forge very badly. That whoa, talk yeah, you really did. But also your deck was horribly imbalanced.
0: Okay, so <laughs> uh do either of you have any any of the games you played this weekend that you want to like spotlight and talk about in particular?
2: I really liked Castles of Burgundy. I, I had never played that game before. Um and it was like uh it was sort of like a worker placement game which doesn't it didn't feel like it snowballs really hard because you are uh, you have like a finite number of workers every round. You can't really grow them at all, um, unlike other work, some other worker placement games. And I don't know, it was like a lot of planning and a lot of sort of looking at what your opponents wanted to do and like prioritizing taking actions that they wanted to do so that you wouldn't get blocked and stuff like that, which is all, all, all elements that I enjoy in worker placement games.
0: Uh, Sam, how about you? What, any, any games that stuck out from this weekend?
1: Um, I mean, Castles was, I think, the game that I enjoyed the most that I wasn't sure if I was going to like. Uh, I was also really impressed by we played a game called Root. Ah, is... I played that. I played that.
2: Yeah, that game
1: yeah, was sweet. It it was cool. It's an asymmetric, uh, territory control sort of, but also kind of army building. I don't know. I don't know exactly what the Great way to describe it is, but I thought it was really fun. Yes.
2: Yeah. So you're you're neither army building nor controlling territory if you're some of the characters. So it's really right, cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's the
1: thing. Like, yeah. We the, the game we played. Uh, I was sort of the like normal ish army building people. Uh, ben was sort of the insurgent army building people that sort of start out with nothing and build their armies in a really different way. Uh, another friend of ours was a uh was like the opposing force to me and then john stern was the vagabond who's like totally doing his own thing uh just like a a random adventurer kind of who wins via helping people enough which is like just such a different thing to have in a game like that
0: yeah i remember playing that game i I played as the vagabond and and after i played i really wanted to play as like everything except for that boring usual like normal one that you played sam like i wanted to play is because you the so there's like the two main sides fighting the war against each other and one just has very normal and boring mechanics and then the other one has this like cool mechanic where you basically have to like uh declare what you're going to attempt to do each turn and then if you're unable to actually fulfill all those decrees you uh you like sputter and die and lose the rest of your turn or whatever and have to start again from uh, from a low number of things per turn.
1: Yeah. I, one thing I will say about that game, though, while, while I thought it was really fun and cool, um, just explaining the rules took a really long... Like, it is not a simple game.
0: Yeah, and, and the rules... like you, you don't get a lot of equity of explaining the rules to multiple people at once, because pretty much everybody has a unique set of rules for and what they have and to do. It also
1: felt really important to know what the other people did, so like that that added a little layer of complication, I would say.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's, that's definitely a big drawback of it, but I, I really enjoyed playing it as well. Uh,
1: yeah, it felt like once you knew what, every, what everyone was capable of, it was really, really cool.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, awesome game. Okay, uh, so another piece of news that we would like to cover here at the top of the show is that there is an upcoming banned and restricted announcement. Now you may ask, didn't we just have a banned and restricted announcement? Yes, we did. Uh, and there were no changes. And the next one was then slated to be in November, uh, but they have now moved it back to, in two weeks, we're going to have another banned and restricted update. Uh, Ben, what do you think the significance of this movement is?
2: Well, I assume that they got all the lists for the Mythic Championship and were like, oh crap, that's a lot of copies of some card. And so they got a little freaked out and wanted to give themselves a little bit of leeway in case they want to ban something.
0: Aren't they allowed to just do like to just do an emergency ban whenever they want? Like this is kind of a weird half measure between an emergency ban and, and a scheduled well, ban.
2: I think the phrase "emergency ban" has been like misused. I don't believe there was ever an actual emergency. Like whatever the memory jar ban was, I think. Um, was like a different kind of band, but I think it was similar to this where they just announced another band and restricted day. Um, like just in case, uh, I, I don't think that like they've ever actually just like one day without warning said such and such is banned.
1: Yeah. The, the closest thing I think to an emergency ban was when they, uh, banned fell at our guardian after having not banned fell at our guardian guardian in the announcement they made like two days before
0: they yeah, so, changed
1: their mind on that one.
2: So very similar to this in other words,
1: that one, yeah. I think,
0: is more an emergency than this. Like, this is still two weeks' notice of when there's going to be mean, a change. I
1: think, I think in this case, they did this because they didn't want to pull the rug out on the Mythic uh, Championship players. They don't want to, like... Or, and they don't want to officially have killed the format before the Mythic Championship even takes place. You know, like, they don't want people to watching it to be like, yeah, this is clearly an irrelevant format because they've already banned the cards from it. Right. Even yeah. though I think that is ultimately what is going to happen. Like I think they're basically 100 to ban uh, to to ban Field of the Dead. That would be my guess.
0: Field of the Dead certainly seems like the most egregious and not like the type of gameplay they're going for in standard uh, card that is in the format.
1: Yeah, I think also the there. My understanding was there were big issues with time at the SCG. Mm-hmm. Um, like just Surprise. matches were going really, really long in the golos mirrors. And I think they that that in particular seems like a really big problem. I, I know sometimes like they, they probably also have analytics from Arena where they can look at the amount of time that the average match is taking. And I could imagine, you know, if, if the average match is taking like one or two minutes longer, that is actually really, really bad for them, I think. And something they, they should probably take action on.
0: And I I would wager that it's dramatically more than one or two minutes longer.
1: Um, uh, it takes a lot to raise the average by one or two minutes.
0: Okay, yeah, m- maybe, but but among the highest levels of competition, where Golos mirrors are common.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I'm not speaking to the extremes. I'm talking about just... you're talking like, about the full the average across all across
0: all on- games on Moto. Okay, yeah, I, I guess yeah. or I guess most of those are still going to be not Golos mirrors. Right. All right. Um, cool. Yeah, I, I think we're kind of all everybody. Like the, the the most common take is to expect a field of the dead ban. I think there are some discussions about maybe Popper uh, receiving some some updates as well. I'm not They're a Popper player. All,
2: There's just no chance they would show. schedule. There's well, just no chance they would schedule an emergency ban to ban something in Popper. That's true. Like, yeah. I'm sorry. Do you, but the do you Popper think... community is like? ridiculously small fraction of Magic players. Well,
1: they, they might do it once they're in, the, you know, once they're making a second band announcement.
2: Sure.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Like that. It's it, if it's if it's band announcement anyway, and it's clear that Popper needs Astrolabe or whatever band or Ephemerate. Whatever the, I just have a really the problem card is, caring. I, I
2: like, guess they could do it. What if they decide not to ban anything in standard, and they're just really embarrassed about calling an emergency ban to ban nothing? So yeah, they, exactly. Like I, right, I, whatever, we'll just ban Astrolabe. It'll be fine. I,
0: I think that might like. Th- I think that is probably what they would do if they decide they don't want to ban anything in standard after all. Um, although I, I really don't see much downside to banning Field of the Dead. Like even if it's not oppressive in tournaments in the next two weeks. I
1: Oh, I think there's some downside. Like, now that the way people are interacting with Magic is through Arena, if they, if they ban a card, like, if they ban Field of the Dead on Arena, they can't really do anything to correctly compensate players who, like, crafted Golos and all these wacky one-off lands that they now don't really have a good use for. Like, that, that, that is a very real cost, I
2: think. This this is not really different from how it's always been, though. Like, they ban a card and all the cards around it tank in value. So you're like, well, I guess I could yeah. sell my polos for 10 cents.
0: On Arena, though, it, it is is—it is mile. kind of like... Th- this is this is something that hasn't happened to people who exclusively engage with Magic through Arena yet. So yeah, the first time it does... Like. Yeah, but the, the, they had this whole big renewal season. Like, they really planned for it. They had Standard 2020 going... Long before the rotation actually happened, so that like people were already ready for it, um, and they gave everybody a bunch of stuff with the the renewal. Like, I, I think they're doing they're trying pretty hard to not lose all the arena players every rotation, and I, I think that they're going to have trouble the first time they, they ban something and uh, effectively invalidate you know twenty rare wild cards that people have spent uh, on the deck. I, I don't know what the right solution is for that though. Like that there maybe there's a clever answer for what they can do. Um, but it's tough. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't know what, I don't know what it is. All right, let's move on to our main topic, via thanking our good friends of the podcast and illustrious friends of the podcast. And one of our illustrious friends, actually our current, our current uh, longest-standing illustrious friend, has requested that Sam be the one to read their name. So Sam, uh, you may respond to that request now.
1: At this time, allied strategies will not be honoring such a request. We appreciate your interest. That is all I have to say on the matter.
0: All right, that uh, illustrious friend. For now, you know we'll have to see what happens after they they hear that. You know, brutal uh, rejection of their request is kiki jiki. Uh, other illustrious friends are Winchester and Kyle. Welcome, Kyle. Then our good friends are Adam, Matt, Britton, Kyle, Ari, Eric, uh, Zach, Sam, Duncan, Baptiste, Wilson, Tobias, Paul, Ryan. Jarvis KU. Uh, what, is, what, what, what was the thing, Ben, that Jarvis had requested here? Is that we could, like, uh, make up well, something Jarvis for... Well, Jarvis requested
2: we say his full name Jarvis KU, but then I negotiated that we would be able to replace his middle initial with any letter or any word that starts with a hard C sound. Okay. So I would like to propose the first word be quality.
0: Okay, Jarvis Quality U. Uh, booster Therapy, Caroline, Ari, Will, and Phil... Thanks, everybody, uh, for the support over on the Patreon. And we have a Patreon question of the week this week that Ben has been extremely excited about ever since I pasted it into this document. Um, It comes from Sean, who asks, I am beginning a master's program in applied and computational mathematics. What are some of your favorite mathematical concepts from Magic the Gathering that you think would be worth exploring throughout the program? Ben, you have two minutes to respond.
2: All right, so I like asymptotic growth rates. Uh, so that's like big O notation, big Omega notation, an understanding of like you know how fast functions grow as a well, you know as a function of their input, uh, the size of their input. And I also like game theory. Like there's a lot of game theory applications to meta games. Like okay, what should I play if I think my opponents have some probability distribution over these decks that they're going to play, given that my win percentages are these. Um, let's see I also like just thinking about magic as a computer so like you know Magic the Gathering is Turing complete which basically means that you can use Magic the Gathering cards to simulate a computer so that's sort of a fun little like fact that that's interesting to think about I'm sorry your time is up let's move
0: on that to was our not
2: two minutes okay all right
0: minutes. fine fine I was just I uh, thought it'd be funny to cut you off a little early continue continue
2: no no it's fine I, I see how I'm treated
0: okay uh, let's move on to our card of the week segment Sam, what is your card of the week?
1: Oh, my card of the week this week is Killer Whale. It is uh, blue blue three, so five mana total for a three five that's a whale. I assume it's still a whale. Uh, And it has (laughs) blue killer whale gains flying until end of turn. And I really like Killer Whale. I just think this card's super cool. I don't really have anything else to say about it other than it's like a whale jumping out of the water... Uh, about to like snap up and eat I think it's the Weatherlight, but it might be a bug. I think it's the Weatherlight though. Uh and yeah, it's just it's just really cool, right?
0: Yeah, Did I remember this back in Vintage Masters
1: uh being a good card? Yeah, I also I
2: remember a, playing in Vintage.
1: It's not it's not a bad card or anything. I I'm just super I just think it's really neat.
2: Did you hit random card, Samuel?
1: No. I was looking at Killer Whale at work today because uh, I, I thought about it and i really like the art on it and i think it's a really cool card
2: all right fine
1: that's that's really all i got there's no there's no sinister cheating behind the scenes here i just like killer whale that's all
2: ben what is your card of the week my card of the week is moonlit scavengers moonlit scavengers is a six mana four five cost five and a blue uh it is a merfolk rogue so notably a non-human and when Moonlit Scavengers enters the battlefield, if you control an artifact or enchantment, return target creature and opponent controls to its owner's hand. This is a common in Throne of Eldraine Limited, and it is is one that I have been pretty impressed with in my games. Um, you know, war type creatures have always been pretty good in Limited. This one has a hefty body for the mana cost. And while you can't always trigger uh, the, the ability... I found that it's not very difficult to do so. Um, blue has blue and blue and white both have like enchantments that enchantment and artifacts that like are removal. So if you just have one of those li- and those tend to lie in play a lot, right? So if you just have one of those lying around, then this thing will be on. And then also the 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 blue one of the blue sub themes is like having artifacts and enchantments, so it's pretty easy to just pick some up. There's a lot of artifact creatures in the set, um, and I've just found this card to just get a lot of tempo and just be a a pretty big body for the format, and you can just start attacking people. If you start, you know, casting these over consecutive turns, like, it's pretty easy to just put the screws to your opponent.
0: Yeah, definitely a good card in this format. Uh, You know, there's, like, incidental food tokens, there's witching wells lying around, Um, there's some, yeah, some very, especially in blue-white, there's a bunch of very good artifacts available.
2: Uh, I will say that that i lament the arena the era of arena um design that this card doesn't bounce your own creatures yeah like, th-
0: that would make it a lot better
2: yeah it would be really good with adventures then it would and it would just be really cool it would add a add an extra layer of stuff you can do with the card make the game's more varied which which i think would be really cool but.
0: dude speaking of arena design this set has got a lot of not friendly arena design going on like gilded goose requiring like 70 kick clicks to uh, make me mana. Uh, I think and not that's
1: kind of a thematic thing, though. Not working like, with autoplay and everything, yeah. It's not easy to get the eggs out of the Golden Goose. You have to do a lot of coaxing. I think yeah. that makes sense.
0: That makes sense, yeah. Um, my card of the week is Realm Cloak Giant. Realm Cloak Giant is the 5-white-white, the 7-7 white, seven, seven Vigilance with the adventure for 3-white-white white to destroy all non-giant creatures. Uh, this card, of course, we talked about a little bit last week in the Golos deck. Uh, does well there. Absurdly broken and limited. Just unbelievably broken and limited. But my problem with this is actually the animation of cast-off on Arena. It's this big fist that comes down and smashes the table. And that looks really cool. And it destroys all the non-giant creatures, and that, that's really cool. My problem is that that's not what's happening in the adventure card. Cast-off, <laughs> like, th- this giant is cloaked in the realm. He's, he's wearing or the, the entire, like, landscape as a cloak. And cast off is supposed to be the giant casting off the cloak like throwing the cloak off and that kills everything uh, except for the other giants uh, so it's there's not really an, an appropriate you know time in that for there to be a hand smashing against something uh, so that's my that's my issue here
2: All yeah, right. I
1: think that that sounds legit to me it does look very as much very pretty. As I
2: hate to admit it it's a valid criticism
1: the the
0: animation is good though it's just it's it's wrong it is good though Let's move on to our main topic. Uh, <laughs> finally, um, where we'll talk about common mistakes that people make in limited. Um, so originally, we, we were going to talk entirely this episode uh, about like when you have a card that has an alternate cost or you know a, a special condition, a condition, a conditional effect, uh, and when you should choose to pay that. Like additional cost or wait for there to be a target. If you have something that like destroys an artifact, for instance, when should you wait for your opponent to play an artifact so that you can then get the value from this? Uh, or if you have a you know a pump spell uh, like a Garen Brig Carver, when when should you you know cast it as a three two versus hold it for when you'll get good value on the trick end of it? Um, and I think that that's kind of a good a good place to start this week uh, is talking about that side of things uh, and then from there we'll move on to the other big mistakes we've seen but ben uh, this this was kind of your idea that that led into this this topic so uh, do you have kind of a thesis about what the right times are like any any heuristics for when you should play these sorts of kicker creatures
2: um i mean the main things i would say that i look at is i try to evaluate sort of two things like what am i giving up if I choose to play a creature, like, early, like, without the kicker cost, basically. So, like, adventure creatures, like, what are you choosing to give up if you just cast the creature as, a, as it normally is, rather than for its adventure cost, right? Um, so, what are you giving up? And then also, the flip side of that is what, like, what do you gain by casting the creature early? Um, so, as an example, we can talk about, like, uh, Smitten Swordmaster, I believe is the name of the card. The 2-1 lifelink for 2 that has B, like, uh, drain them for one for every knight you control, right? So, like, how willing are you to play that card on turn two, right? Uh, How many knights do you have in your deck? Like, what are you giving up by choosing not to play curry favor? Um, Yeah, and, like, are you
0: if this is game two or three, how good is a 2-1 lifelink against your opponent? You know, is is your opponent playing 1-3s? Are you going to just... Like, do you need curry favor to drain them out? Do you have a lucky clover in your deck that's going to combo with this if you, you know, it's and, and allow you to kill your opponent that way, um, you know, or like, are,
2: are do you have, on the play? Mm-hmm. Do you want to block? Do you, you need
0: know, just... targets for the equipment in your hand and the pump spells in your hand, or do you not have anything that cares about playing this creature? Do you have another creature you could play this turn? Um,
2: yeah. These are the sorts of questions that I ask myself, and unfortunately, you know, there's no rule of thumb, right? Like, this is what being good at magic is about, really, is is being able to weigh the costs and the benefits of a decision like this and, and trying to arrive at the correct one. Um, with Smitten Swordmaster, usually the upside is pretty low to casting curry favor. Like, you often don't have that many knights in your deck. Um,
0: yeah, and if you're eventually going to be able to drain your opponent for two or three with this thing, like... That's one attack with the smitten swordmaster because it came down earlier. So,
2: yeah, but let's look at the uh, let's look at maybe a more powerful card like Order of Midnight.
0: That's a great right? example. Yeah,
2: Order Order of Midnight is a card where if you play it on turn two, it's very easy to just attack your opponent for a lot of damage. Right, the two two flying is fairly difficult to block, um, and you can just pretty efficiently attack for a lot. But the adventure card is very powerful right having grave digger in your deck is a very like just straight up raise deading a, a, a creature is straight up card advantage and limited which is really powerful um so you know when should you just play a two two that can't that you're just going to attack with for the next foreseeable future on turn two um well you know how aggressive is your deck is a question you need to ask yourself or how aggressive is your hand is an even better question right? If your hand after that contains, like, some 1-3s and some, like, o oh 4s I would say you probably shouldn't bother playing the 2-2 two two Flyer, right? It's unlikely to kill your opponent by itself, and it's not like the rest of your hand is capable of putting on the beatdowns. But, what if you have, like, a pretty aggressive draw, like, maybe you have that 3-2 that you can tap a non-human to give it plus 1 plus 1 and trample, and, like, maybe you have some, like, red pump spells or something. Now you have a real choice you have to make, right? Because now the 2 damage is actually relevant, the two damage per turn is actually relevant. Um, and you are giving up something that's really good, which is this raised uh, this raised ability. So in that spot, I would, you know, you, you really have to make a judgment call about how um, likely are you to win a game that goes longer and how likely are you to win a game where your opponent just takes a bunch of damage very quickly. It's sort of how I try to think about it. Like, if you know that your opponent's deck is just a lot grindier than yours, then there's not much point in um, trying to save the creature. And, uh, you know, but if you have, like, a two-drop or whatever that you could play instead, well, then you might as well do that and you can delay the decision a little later.
0: Sam, do you have any uh, any thoughts on, like, these specific cards and situations or the concept in general?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think the way that Ben is laying it out is is really the right way to think about it. And like you mentioned with the Smith and Swordmaster, when you're getting paid in the same resource, like that one, you're just you're hoping to deal damage to your opponent, and you're hoping that they take damage from, like you know, you're hoping to gain life and deal damage. And that one I feel like is a lot easier to evaluate because you can just imagine exactly what it's like. You know, like, am I going to get a hit in? If I am, it's probably worth it to play it. Or you know, am I going to get to eight knights in play or w- whatever the number? you know, whatever the number you need to be to justify. Um, but when you're getting paid in a different kind of resource, that really comes down to thinking about what, the game, what you think the game is going to be about. Like, what's the, you know, what's sort of the key thing that's actually happening in the game? And I think those are the much more interesting kinds of decisions. Um, and, you know, a lot of it, I think, comes down to curve and how aggressive you think your opponent's deck is. Like, I think Order of Midnight is a card especially... In Limited, I'm much more likely to cast against a blue or white deck where their removal spells are not that likely to put my guys in the graveyard. You know, maybe they they are, like, they're playing, like, claustrophobia-type effects. Um,
2: Enchanted Sleep, Samuel. Yeah, sure. Charm Sleep, Benjamin. Charm Sleep? Dang it! (laughs) Wow.
1: Even in his pedantry, Ben White gets it wrong.
2: Really got egg on my face now.
1: You surely do. Um, Um, Yeah, cards like that, I think, you know, that's where it's really important to think about how you expect the game to play out and, uh, you know, make a decision based on that.
2: There's actually sort of a fun flip side to this also where you might want to go out of your way to make sure that your opponent does not get value out of their adventure cards, right? Like, you get attacked on turn three, your opponent has 3 mana untapped, they're playing white, and they're attacking their 2-2 into your 2-3 or whatever. It kind of seems like they really want to cast that adventure that gives plus 2, plus 2, and untaps it, right? So, yeah, yeah. maybe on this turn specifically, you don't want to block, because you don't want to just give them that two, that easy 2-for-1, you know? Um, and so, like, and then maybe you, you block later on, like, maybe you can block on turn 4, where, you know, if they want to get their 2-for-1 or whatever, they really have to delay... Uh, their deployment of, of resources because, you know, in Eldraine there's a bunch of cards that cost four, and they're all pretty good. Um, so, like, that's sort of an interesting flip side. Like, trying to figure out when you want to play the kicker, you can apply that idea to trying to mess up your opponent and make them not able to pay the kicker.
0: Right, because, you know, there are these games where it's obvious when the right time to play the kicker is, right? Because you just, like, the card just lines up naturally with being castable for the the good mode at the right time and yeah, I mean, you if, want to if you minimize have... the amount of times your opponent gets those those moments right you want to deny them being able to do their good stuff on curve if you uh... just have
2: four mana in order of midnight then you can just do it right like there's no there's no reason not to well the but interest...
0: you you still need a creature to go to the graveyard right like that so you, you may still even at that even on turn 4 you may not have a good uh adventure and then cast your creature especially if your opponent doesn't trade when you attack that turn right yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know I, when when you so we we have this kind of topic framed as common limited mistakes. Is there a side of this decision that you you think players err too much on generally? Like, do you think that people? I, my, my perspective with Order of Midnight, for instance, is that people hold it too often on turn two.
2: Yeah, um, I think in, I think in general the 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 most of the mistakes made will be that people refuse to play their creatures. They like they must cast the adventure. They must get the value. So they refuse to play their creatures when they when they really should. Like sometimes you need to cast Shepherd of the Flock on turn two and start attacking your opponent because your opponent, you know, if they just don't have a two drop, then all of a sudden they take a lot of damage and that that's worth something. You know, that's worth a lot. Um, and I've seen I've played against people on Magic Online who just don't play a creature, don't play a creature, don't play a creature, and I'm like, oh thank God I can claw back into this game. And then way later, like they use Shepherd of the Flock to like counter my removal spell or something, and I'm just like. I'm pretty sure they've had that card in their hand for the entire game, so thank God they didn't play it earlier.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's something innately fun about using your cards in the way that it looks like they were intended to be used. So people tend to want to, you know, tend to prefer to do that. You know, so like I think that's the thing you kind of have to fight against—is your natural inclination to uh, to make sure you get that extra value. When really maybe you didn't need it.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's value in playing a card earlier, uh, and that is something that is not written on the card, but uh, you need to needs to factor in the decision also.
1: Yeah, there's there's actually a famous Mark Rosewater story where he was he uh, you know I, I don't know how true it is, but he said he was playtesting with some people in design, and he was playing with Kabu Titan, which is a two mana two two that you can kick to make into a five mana five five trample, and he was saying he would never cast it on turn two, and his win rate was a lot worse than if he had just if it had just been a grizzly bear in his deck. He would have just been better off. Which is an interesting thing to think about. You want to make sure that you're not that that's not happening to you,
0: yeah. right? Yeah, the, the, uh, you, you don't want extra options on a card to lower your win rate. That's bad. Um.
2: I think uh, one thing that I I feel like I sort of hinted at but didn't really address is. I think one of the most important things that factors into my decision is am I going to have time to cast the kicker, right? Like, how how spoken for is my mana over my next several turns, right? Sometimes you just look at your hand and you just have it planned out, right? Like, it's like, all right, I've got a three and then a four and then a five. And then on turn six, I can play two spells. Um, and, like, you know, af- after that, maybe I'll have some mana to spare. So now I have to decide, do I want to play my Order of Midnight, or do I want to save it for, like, later on and turn, like, seven or so? And at that point, I think, like, you know, if you've got your mana set up for the next three turns, if you've got spells to play, just, just play the thing and, and get the beatdowns on, you know? Like, you'll draw more cards, you'll draw more spells to play, um, especially in this format where there's so many other two-for-ones. Uh,
0: yeah, and, and ways to spend your mana as well, so, like, you, you, you know, spending your mana on the turns when you... If if you have an option that lets you spend your mana on a turn when you otherwise wouldn't be able to, you should probably take it because you're not gonna you're not gonna have a good turn down the line where you don't have stuff to do necessarily.
1: Yeah. I, I think in this format in particular, the black decks just don't run out of cards very much.
2: Mm-hmm. Or if they do, they top deck forever young and then you're just like, oh god, why? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Alright. Um let's move on to our next common mistake here. Sam this one is yours to uh, explain but let's let's talk about the mulligan phase where do you do you feel like people make mistakes the most with mulliganing in limited
1: So I think this comes up mostly when players are coming from a constructed background they are going to be pretty tentative about or uh, about keeping uh, hands that are missing things in limited and I think that's a big mistake I think Specifically, in limited, there you you need to be willing to keep more hands that are you know missing one thing or one card away, or even maybe two cards away, just because the nature of the format is is so uh, so card dependent. Like it is so frequent that cards just trade one for one for a long time, and you know eventually maybe you end up. Uh, the person who's up a card from whatever early exchange just ends up winning the game that you really really need to just value your cards very highly i think that's the most important resource and a lot of people you know don't understand that innately because it's it's different than constructed and constructed you know it's it's suicide to to miss your two drop or to you know especially in something like modern if that's where you're coming from uh so you really try to mulligan aggressively to make sure that doesn't happen and i think in in limited you can it's just okay to to have a hand that's not perfect so you should not be worried about that
2: yeah i think you do, do you think that's still true in eldraine when there are so many ways to recoup the lost card because a a card's difference is much less impactful when both players draw you know the like half their deck or whatever the difference between 19 and 20 cards is not nearly as important as the difference between 11 and 12
1: um that's true i do think eldraine is uh a little different but i would still say yeah i, I would still say on average my answer is yes that you probably shouldn't mulligan very often um, it, it does definitely change and like eldraine has some weirdness going on i think where some decks are really hyper-focused on very specific cards. Um, like a, a, a card that comes to mind is Improbable Alliance. I think, you know, if you're an Improbable Alliance deck, you really do build your deck around that card to to a pretty extreme degree. Um, but I, again, I would I still think you should probably just not be afraid to mulligan or not be afraid to keep hands that don't have cards like that if the rest of your deck is good.
0: Yeah, I think that keep keeping a hand like ju- ju- just the odds of having a good six card hand are, are a lot lower and limited. Like you're not you're you usually you don't have a card that's clearly good to put on the bottom. Like you just have seven cards that you want after you mulligan this, and you just have to put like a valuable resource on the bottom of your deck. Uh, whereas in constructed, you often get to like put something redundant on the bottom, uh, and so six card hands are often like not that much worse than seven card hands. Uh, but I think that I think that the average quality of a six hard hand in limited is is quite a lot lower than it is in constructed. Yeah, I agree with that relative to a seven. So I think that mulliganing is is quite a bit worse still. Uh, although it's it, it is miles better than before the London mulligan. Um, like I, th- I think that you can mulligan maybe three or four times as much as you used to before the the new mulligan rule was implemented.
1: Well, I I, I actually really liked the way that Ari Lax described the London mulligan and how it's changed limited, which is. Before you would mull you know, you would mull a really bad seven to six and then just die on you know, die because you missed your land drop or whatever. And now you mull your really bad sevens to a six and die on turn seven because you ran out of resources one turn earlier than your opponent. And I think that's actually a pretty accurate way of thinking about things and you know speaks to how bad it is actually to mulligan in limited even in spite of the london mulligan that's how i
2: feel anyway. for the record i I disagree with the i I agree much more with tristan than with ari in this case i think that the london mulligan has made it much much better to mulligan in limited
0: yeah i mean there's room for like much much better than awful can still be pretty bad um I think yeah. there's a, a possible way that we could all be right here. Uh, but I, I do think that, yeah, pro- probably Sam thinks that mulliganing is worse than I think it is. I th- I think it's probably correct to mulligan... I Actually, I don't, I don't know what a good percentage would be. I, I have not looked at the math on this, but... Uh, you know, I, I, I mulligan one land hands, six land hands. I mulligan, you know, two land hands that don't have a card that costs three or less. Um... Those are the sorts of, the the kind of hands that I am likely to mulligan. I
1: guess, I I guess I would have said previously, I, I have felt and said, I think even previously that I think a lot of players' win rates would go up if they were just not allowed to mulligan and limited if that was, if that option was taken away from
0: them. Yeah. (laughs) Um,
1: I don't think that that is true anymore. I think it's less extreme than that, but I still think it's pretty darn extreme.
0: And there are, cert- there are certainly people who Mulligan too, way too much in limited, uh, especially the oh, people absolutely. who mostly play constructed. I think I think that is definitely true. Um, all right, let's move on to our next topic here. Um, unfortunately, we don't have special guest Matt Nass available this time uh, who is a, a victim of not having the ability to do this anymore. he's, he's lost the permission to well, to no take it. this game action. Um, this is not playing lands when you can so uh, the situation is you know it's turn 12 or whatever. You have one land in hand or maybe two. you draw you, you draw one of them for the turn or whatever and you have nothing going on, so you just keep it in your hand because you're just like, okay, if I draw something important, I'll just play the land next turn. And then the next turn you draw divination, you draw a land and a spell and you can't you can't play the spell because you don't have enough lands in play or whatever. Uh, and you can't play two lands in a turn and then you're in big trouble. Uh, or you know you draw something with an activated ability and you can't activate it enough because you held it, it, like God forbid you ever hold more than one land in your hand. Um, I, I think most people are are pretty good about not holding more than one land in their hand, but a lot of people will still hold that last land in their hand, uh, and that can pretty easily punish you. Uh, so Sam, what, what's your perspective on on this error?
1: I mean, I think you summed it up perfectly. I think people wildly overrate the value of bluffing. In limited in particular people just don't fall for bluffs that often because often especially when you get to that late point in the game you are you have no choice but to just do the thing that you wanted to do like you can't just wait around forever that's not really how the game works so people tend to just play their cards and you know maybe they get uh maybe they get blown out because you tricked them and you had actually been holding something but it just it just doesn't happen that often so I, I think, like, in general, it's more likely that you forgot something in your deck that would want would make you want to play your land, than that you have a real good reason to to not play your land.
0: Yeah. So that, that makes sense. when you say forgot something, like the, the the process you should be doing is you should be thinking through like what are the cards in my deck that could make me wish I'd played this land? Uh, again, anything that makes you draw a card, basically. Uh, in the middle of your turn, or draw, draw more than one card in the middle of your turn, is, is a big candidate for this effect, but um, there are there are other cards that will randomly punish you for having held a land in your hand. Um, Benjamin, how about you? What, what do you think about playing, playing your lands in Limited?
2: In Limited, I think there's actually an interesting tension, because people play Mind Rots way more often in Limited. So sometimes you do want to hold lands to protect... Uh, like a removal spell that you don't want to cast or something like that. Um, so I think it does come up that you don't want to play your lands depending on what the cards in your opponent's deck do. But I agree that in general, people do not play their lands enough. Like if I hold a land in my hand, I'm not doing it to bluff my opponent. That is not what I'm thinking about. That is not a reasonable thing to try to do. Because like Sam said, like it's just so obvious when your opponent has drawn a land instead of a spell. Because they didn't play a creature and you attack them with a creature, and they take the damage. Yeah. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. like, your opponent drew a land, you know, ninety 95% of those times. Um, so you shouldn't do it with that in mind. You, you can... you. It is reasonable to do, I think, that if you have situational instants that you don't... Situational spells that you don't think you're going to cast immediately, and you think your opponent has Mind Rot or Discard cards effects...
0: Yeah, or if you have if you have like thrill of possibility in your deck, that's a card you could draw where yeah. you'd want to have something in your hand to discard. So you want to keep the last land in your hand. In that case, so there there are time like there are people who commit this error in the other direction, but they are few and far between. The people who will just always play all their lands as compared to the people who hold them too
2: often. I believe if you were forced to play your land every time you had it, you would commit fewer mistakes than uh, if you were uh,
0: forced allowed. to hold. Yeah,
2: forced to hold, I guess, whatever that means, really. Uh-huh.
0: In the situations you're talking about, yeah. All right, let's move on to the next error here using removal on curve. W- which one of you wrote this one in, in the list? Uh, I did. All right, so w- what what is this, and which side of, like, should you or should you not be using removal on curve?
1: I think generally speaking, people I, tend to I, go I like that then.
2: Tristan doesn't know what the answer is.
1: Well, it depends, you know. It, it, there, the, I believe,
0: again, there's mistakes to be made on both sides of this. Um, but, I don't know, Sam, explain, explain it to us. Teach me. Okay,
1: so, what I was thinking when I said, when I put this was, I feel like it is not that uncommon that I see newer players use their removal uh, because they get to use all their mana this turn, and they've learned that using their mana each turn is good, which is definitely true. Um, but, there are limits to that
0: and okay so like removing an unimportant creature uh, so th-
1: yeah so this would be like you know using your removal spell to kill a 2-2 when you're planning to play a 2-3 on turn three
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that's just not a good use of your resources and so that, yeah that. the like, better
0: the I, better strategy is like if you have if you have versatile removal that can answer more than just The type like okay, sometimes you have a card like Shock or whatever, right? If if I have Shock and I have a a, a turn that it fits in and I can kill uh, something with two health, I'm pretty likely to do that unless I you know can foresee a situation where I'll be able to use it uh, for value, like for to blow somebody out, Uh, or Or if I if I have you know Reeve Soul or whatever and my opponent has a three power creature, I'm pretty likely to kill that with Reeve Soul. Uh, but I guess I, I guess even then, if it depends on if I have it answered with creatures as well. Because if I, if I have a creature that's holding that off, then I'll save it for a flyer or whatever. But if I don't, then I'm, I'm pretty likely to just cast that on curve and, you know, stabilize the board, right? I mean, it,
2: just yeah, all, I mean, de- I... it all depends, right? Like, sometimes you don't shock a 2-2 because you're intending to play a 2-3. Right. Then your opponent plays another 2-2, and you don't draw a 2-drop, and you're like, well... Like, if my plan is to not shock again and then play a 2-3, and then they remove my 2-3, like, all of a sudden that's a lot of damage I'm taking. Like, maybe I just need to cast this shock on a 2-2, even though I'm going to play a 2-3 just to, like, prepare for the worst-case scenario or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, that's a sequence that I think comes up pretty commonly. But flip it and be on the play instead. There's no way you're just going to shock a 2-2 on turn 2 when you're intending to play a 2-3. It's just not... It's not going to happen, you know. Mm.
0: Yes, uh, d- definitely. Any anytime you remove a creature that does not need to be removed, uh, I think that's that's generally bad.
1: Yeah, I think, I think the the thing here is a failure to think for to have a plan for the like a holistic plan for the game yeah, is I, usually the the error that's being made.
2: But when you're casting a removal spell, you should ask yourself what goal is this accomplishing. Like, uh, like, if you cast a removal spell on curve to kill a blocker and get damage into your opponent, that is a goal. And maybe that's something you want to do. Like, you shouldn't just be casting your spells just because you can, right? Uh,
0: not, the, not the removal spells, yeah. I mean, the creatures you kind of do just throw onto the battlefield because you can when you can. Well, but yeah.
2: They have diminishing... There's, there's a host of reasons why it's better to spend mana on, on creatures and proactive cards than on, like, reactive cards. Mm-hmm. Namely, that proactive cards usually require a turn of investment before they start paying off. So the earlier you invest, the better. Uh, whereas the removal spells are, you know, flexible and in, and, and happen immediately. Um,
0: but yeah, they, they, they tend to get better the later you play them because you'll have more information about what targets are available. Yeah. All right, the next item on the list is low-value blocks. Um, Sam, what, what is a low-value block?
1: Um, so I guess I would describe this as typically it is blocking with a creature. Uh, it's, it's a little format-dependent. It usually is in a format where there's a particular spell that uh, or a particular creature usually that gets value coming into play. So like Dire Fleet Daredevil... Uh, maybe creatures like Forge Devil that ping for one. War- is- dire Fleet, Daredevil's not the one. Dire Fleet. Dar- uh, Fathom
0: Fleet, Cutthroat is, I think, the one you're thinking Fathom of. Fathom
1: Fleet, Cutthroat? Sure, yeah. yeah, that's that's the one. Um, you know, cards like that, where you're not getting... Uh, they they're, they're probably have to play them anyway at some point, and it's usually not that good to block, like, let's say, if your opponent attacks a 1-3 into your 2-2, it's often not worth it to block if if there's a permanent they could play that gets incidental value out of that,
0: yeah. So now, feral invocation in M twenty, right? E- even cards like um, like Garen Brig Carver it kind of fit into this uh, thing, like the the adventure pump spells. Uh, if it you know is a good turn for them to to do those effects, um, yeah, absolutely. We're not talking so. The, yeah, there's a specific set of cards that give your opponent you know two for one levels of value, basically. Uh, and you make you want to make sure you're not blocking when you don't have to, and playing into those cards. Uh, what we're not talking about is blocking. You know, when your opponent would have to use a real card to make it a like to to win the combat, right? Like that's that's a good block to do. Um, but yeah,
1: yeah. So that's sort of on the opposite side of this. Is uh, I think another mistake people make is not blocking when you have a, a block. That would cost your opponent substantially to uh, t- to use their combat trick. A lot of people think, "Oh, I'm going to play around this combat trick," and what that means to them is I'm not going to lose a creature to a combat trick, which is not really what you want to do. You want to, you know, make try to make the trades happen on your terms in ways that you are okay with. I guess is what I would say.
0: Yeah, because if you force your opponent to play a 2-mana combat trick on the third turn to remove your 2-3 or whatever, you're kind of forcing them to use removal on curve um, on an unimportant creature. Like that That's close to the effect that you're having when, when you make that block. I, I don't know, it depends on your hand there, right? Like If, if you have a way, an instant speed way to blow out a combat trick uh, and you're reasonably going to be able to hold that up soon... You maybe just want to wait until you can do that before you start making these blocks. But if you don't, like, if if you're never going to beat plus two plus two uh, without having it kill one of your creatures, then just get it out of their hand. Make them do it on a turn when they they are then not able to develop uh, another creature uh, because they have to play that. Yeah, you
1: can also, you can all, yeah, exactly. That's exactly the thing is it can be pretty inconvenient for your opponent to actually play these combat tricks. You know, it costs them a good amount of mana sometimes. And if they don't, if it slows their board development down, it can be better for your life total in the long run to just play into the trick rather than try to, try to avoid it. Yeah. Then, especially if, yeah, okay, go. if you're
2: just going to play another two, three next turn, right? They, atta- they attack their two, two into your two, three, you block, they kill with a combat trick. You just play another two, three next turn. You know, the world, the world has stayed more or less the same, except, you know, both players got to take another turn. And I think that generally will favor you because, um, you know they they had to skip their turn of being able they they had to use their spell which had, takes immediate effect whereas you got to just invest mana into proactive plays it's just better usually.
0: I think that's a great way of thinking about it. Yeah, um, again there, there you know there are situations here where you need to you 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 need to basically ask yourself what's going to happen if I block and they have it like is it actually worse for me than not blocking if they have it because your opponent gets to keep that card if if you don't block and. Uh, you need to you need to be aware, but then you have to you have to you definitely have to like run through what cards are in the format and make sure you're not making one of these low value blocks where your opponent can play a card like Fat and Fleet Cutthroat uh, that they are going to play on their, you know it's their fourth turn or whatever and they're they're going to be able to play that and completely blow you out for making that block. So
2: yeah, I mean in Sam's example, the block is low value because you only you're saving one life, which is pretty right, not important. But a two two into a two three, like you're giving up killing a two two, right? Yes, so, so that's. that's
0: that's the difference between the the you know one three into it into a two three and the two two into a two three attacks yeah. um, for sure. All right, let's talk about uh, the final item on this list, which is having a plan in the super late game. So the super late game and limited, we're talking about like turn ten plus. You know, both players well, have a bunch of later, stuff. I,
2: like sometimes games of limited just get bogged down to the point where you're going to. Draw every card in your deck.
0: Yeah, like both players have a bunch of power and toughness in play and nobody has profitable attacks because of how double blocking works.
2: Yeah. Now, if you know you're going to draw every card in your deck, then you can figure out exactly what you need, what is in your deck that you need in order to break through this stalemate, right? Um, Sometimes you might have nothing, and in that case you're just dead, and there's not really anything you can do about it. But most of the time, you know, you'll have some sort of card that will let you spend mana for advantage in some way, which will be advantageous once the game gets to this point where no one can attack and both players are just going to draw every card. Uh, And those cards then you have to protect, right? And you have to make a plan in order to protect those cards and deal with your opponent's cards, right? So this means not casting removal on just big creatures, Because, like, who cares if their 6-6 is the biggest creature on the battlefield if everyone has, like, three 4-4s lying around? Like, their 6-6 doesn't have good attacks anyway. It'll just trade for a 4-4. And, like, killing their 6-6 doesn't really unlock any attacks for you. So there's no point in doing it. Instead, you need to save that removal spell for some creature um, that lets them get some advantage out of their mana. I'm sort of struggling to think of an example in Eldraine, because I think most of the cards that would do this are adventures.
0: Yeah, but But, just some flyer, right? Like, you know, a creature with evasion.
2: A creature with evasion will actually kill you, but I'm thinking, like, even... Oh, here's a good one. Like, uh, Brimstone Trebuchet, right? Brimstone Trebuchet is a card that ignores the combat entirely and will eventually kill you, right? So you need to be able to um, kill this card. So you need to save your removal and point it at exactly that card. And conversely, if that's your main way to win the game, maybe you need to save your... um, your coercion, your memory theft, for when you draw your brimstone trebuchet, so that you can um, protect it with the memory theft, in order to uh, kill them with the, the trebuchet. And maybe that means giving up some value from the memory theft, right? Like maybe your opponent has a card on an adventure, and like normally you could get a two for one with the with the memory theft. But it's important to realize that that is not important. A two for one doesn't matter. Um, if everyone is going to draw every card in their deck, usually because not all cards will be impactful on those game states.
0: Yeah, the, the, you get to this point in the game, and, and a three-three stops being worth a card, right? The, the the game is just all about these few cards in each deck that affect who's going to win the game. Merfolk Secret Keeper, yeah, uh, Forever Young. You know, the, these sorts of cards are the are the ones that are kind of the operative cards that you can be thinking about uh, for like the axis of milling your opponent, which I find to be a pretty common one in Throne Limited, uh, you kind of get to this super late game point, and you count the cards in each player's deck, and you're like, okay, you know, who's going to mill first? Uh, and having some cards that incidentally mill your opponent uh, are a great way to have a plan in the super late game because th- that's going to be really important, but your opponent's pretty likely to have those as well. Uh, and you need to be careful to not play into cards like um, Forever Young that your opponent may have that will blow you out if you try and Merfolk Secret Keeper them early, so maybe you need to yeah. wait. Maybe that's maybe you're playing against Black is to wait until you can secret keeper them uh, on their last four cards or whatever.
2: Yeah, if you know your opponent, yeah, exactly. Or you can secret keeper them multiple times or something like that.
0: Yeah, yeah, perfect. And, but but you know you are not putting your you're not casting your secret keeper and then putting an 0-4 into play, which is tempting uh, because you know putting creatures into play is tempting. Um, so yeah, th- this is a great. I think uh, absolutely a thing that you just like you you get to these spots in the in the late game you. Everybody should have an answer for how you're going to win this game when you get to this when, when you get to this point where everybody's played all the cards in their hand. You need to just know what's in your deck and identify a way that you can go from here to winning the game, uh, and that you know people don't do that and they make lines that are not consistent with which cards they could actually draw that would win them the game, and then those cards no longer win them the game when they draw them.
2: Or there's like there's also smitten swordmaster, right? Yeah. So here's another example. So like you draw order of midnight. Um, and you think to yourself, okay, so I could, like, my opponent is at not a huge amount of life total, so I could just play my Order of Midnight for value now, and then play the 2-2 and start attacking. Like, but it doesn't seem like this is going to work that well. They have a lot of reach creatures in their deck, or removal, or whatever. They'll probably... I'll I'll be able to get in a little damage, but not that much. So maybe it's better to just save the Order of Midnight for, like, eight turns from now, when I'm going to have every night in my deck and play and i can play the smitten Swordmaster, and then kill it with my own removal spell maybe or sacrifice it or suicide it or something and then use the order of midnight to bring it back and then deal the the final points like that maybe that's the the real strategy i should try to do um you know these sorts of decisions can come up and just having this vision Being able to recognize what an extremely long game with your deck is going to look like um, is something that you can do even, like, without being in the game, because once you know you're going to draw every card, then you can just figure out what the game is going to look like.
0: And I think it's characteristic of a good drafter that you will draft something that does this, that wins you a super late game, uh, and you'll prioritize picking up something that actually allows you to win that sort of game, or you'll make a deck where you just accept that you're not going to win those games. Um, Yeah,
2: I would say it's important for some decks, but you know, if you have an aggressive deck or whatever, it just doesn't really matter. That's
0: true, yeah. Um, but if you try to draft a mid range deck without a plan like this, I think I think you're gonna you're doing yourself a disservice, and you should you know sacrifice some quality to put in the types of cards like Smitten Swordmaster plans that actually do eventually win the game. Uh, if in this board stall, Sam, we haven't heard from you on, on this uh, having a plan in the super late game topic. Uh, do you have any input on any of this stuff no, we said about I, it? I
1: mean, I. I... I think Ben summed it up really, really well. I think that is is exactly the kind of thing that you need to do, and exactly the right way to think about it. Um, particularly, you have to recognize that, uh, especially. I think this applies in Eldraine Limited. Uh, doing nothing is not actually an an end game. Like, I've drafted some decks that are like, wow, this deck's really grindy and really good at playing long games, but it didn't actually win the long games because I would lose to you know other people who were playing with like Merfolk Secret Keepers or Folio of Fancies or whatever, like just random cards that I was unprepared to deal with. Um, and so then their late game was going over the top of mine and the whole point of my deck was to get to the late game. So I was like, it, it, you were almost 100% to lose in those matches. And I think being able to recognize also, not, not just when particular games reach that state, when you've drafted a deck that is likely to go to that state, mm. um, you know, that you need to have a plan for those long games.
2: It's really fun to just board in horrible creatures because you just know that you can't win <laughs> a super long game. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, I think yeah. Folio Fancies is the type of card where you just your opponent plays a Folio Fancies in game one and you just look at your cards and you're like, okay, well, none of these beat Folio Fancies, so let's put in this uh, two mana tutu and but- see if we can kill our opponent.
2: It's great when you do that, and then they just board the other way because they're just assuming that they're in a like a mid range mirror, so they have like a bunch of memory thefts in their deck, and you just play horrible creatures and just try to kill them, and it works. It's so funny. I love limited. Yeah, but
0: that, that, that I've executed that plan and constructed as well. Um, <laughs> like uh, I played a, a blue white control deck once with just eight two mana or one mana two ones in it that I boarded or in the sideboard. That I just bring in and uh, try and murder, you know, some opponents.
2: Uh, that actually sounds awful. <laughs>
0: it was not good. Um, I was very new. This was my first standard format. Um, all right. I think that about does it here for our list of, of common limited mistakes. If you are listening and you're, th- you're you know you've been thinking, you've been waiting for your favorite limited mistake to come up, and we haven't mentioned it, send us a tweet or whatever. Tweet at us and be like, hey. You know, you missed this one, and we'll if there if there's some good ones we missed, we'll cover them on our next episode. Um, but I think we I think we covered a lot of big ticket items uh, that I, I see when playing against people or when watching streams of less experienced players uh, playing limited, uh, or even sometimes more experienced players. Especially the I think that there a few of these items are ones that like constructed specialists will make when playing limited.
1: Um, yeah, I think these kind of have like a curve of like how good you are versus how often you make the mistake, where like. The not playing lands thing is something that people who are in like an intermediate place do, whereas the not having a, a plan is a, a more of a new player thing.
0: Yeah. Um, so that, that, that hopefully there's something for everybody in this list. And I, I believe that most, most listeners and many hosts of the show uh, probably commit at least one of these categories of error. Um, let's move on to... Finishing our show, though, with an end story. And this one actually relates a little bit to the, the mug topic from last week. Sam, what, what is the, what is this end story?
2: Okay, so uh,
1: Ben and I went to the Couv this weekend for, for a board game convention, which is also where Caroline and her family happen to live. So we went over to her house for dinner on Sunday night, and that was great. We had a, a really nice dinner. And afterwards uh myself ben and john stern were playing some board games while caroline was playing the uh one of the like win one of everything in standard challenge on arena um and at a certain point her mom comes into the room and uh has been asking all night you know oh does anyone want anything to drink does anyone want tea any coffee and finally ben says yeah i'll I'll take a san pellegrino and she brings it to him and then she brings him a mug to go with it and goes all right, here, you know, here's your San Pellegrino, and here's a mug. And you can keep that mug by the way. And Ben at first is a little taken aback. He's like, "Uh, Oh, what? What, What's up? And she's like, Oh no, that's like for you to take home. And (laughs) the whole time, Ben, like me and John are just laughing hysterically as this whole thing is going on. And Ben is kind of trying to politely refuse it. And, she starts to get offended, which is really funny. She goes like, "Like, well, that's very rude. You don't want to take this mug that I that I got for you home." And of course, the whole thing was a setup the whole time.
2: And I was she was tr- just playing the part. I was trying to figure out if she knew about when I refused Caroline's mug. I was asked. I asked her, like, "Oh, did, wait, did did you talk to your daughter? Is this, she, you know?" I I couldn't figure out the right way to phrase it. <laughs> and she played the part perfectly. Oh my god, she got me so good. I, I had no clue. She was it, it was fantastic. A perfect actress. Did you so, end up you taking know. the mug, Benjamin? No, of course not. Oh, that's a shame. Once he
1: learned it was all a con, he he gave up. He gave it up.
2: I was never intending to take it home.
1: Really? Even if it was like a, a tradition in their family or something?
2: Oh come on. Who has a tradition of giving mugs? <laughs>
1: What
0: do you mean, dude, that this was the second person in the family that had
2: tried to give you a mug? That is true. I
1: know we're not going to get a a good friend subscription from Tim Muggiver now, that's for sure.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, what a shame. What will I do?
0: All right. That is going to be all for us this week, though. We will unite again next week for more Allied Strategies.
1: I kind of want to tell the story of what happened at lunch today, but I don't think it's actually good—like good enough to be an end story. What happened? Tell it to us now. Oh, Matt oh. tweeted about it. Okay. Oh, he—he he, he and I—we were playing a nine-person credit card game, and he and I were the first two eliminated. So I suggested that we throw our cards back in just to have a little more sweat. There was no next level; like there was no reason to do it. And he agreed, and then he ended up losing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it was unbelievable to me that this it happened. It was
1: great. It was. Re- I'm, I was so happy.
2: I, I would also. I. I'll, honestly, I'm very happy that he he paid. Like well, wait, obviously, wouldn't
1: it be more justice if I paid because like, no I of course really not. suggested
2: it? No, definitely not. You you are obviously some sort of incarnation of the trickster god. So like anyone <laughs> who listens to you deserves to be punished. Was this what?
1: Question: Was I being untrustworthy in this case?
2: No, you are not.
1: Okay, good.